Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday. It is December the 5th, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in. On today's program, I will be getting an update on the historic Murray Church in Merritt in January of this year. The church was burned to the ground. It was the oldest building in the Nicola Valley, having been built in 1867. The building was set on fire, and a 37-year-old Merritt man was arrested and handed four counts of arson as a result. Since that time, a committee has been working to fundraise in order to rebuild the historic building and recently received an anonymous donation of $50,000. With that, just how much more needs to be collected? Well, I'll be joined by fundraising committee member Christina Miller at the end of today's show. In about 25 minutes, I'll be speaking with a University of Saskatchewan professor. Bill Patterson was part of a team that spent years researching how a warming climate and the reduction of sea ice affects penguins' food sources. By seeing a reduction in the amount of krill the penguins eat, it shows the effects of climate change that people may not necessarily think of. Patterson then went on to make a connection to see how climate change will impact humans. So what can penguins teach us about how global warming will affect the human race? Well, I'll be speaking with Bill about that in about, uh, well, 25 minutes' time, so stay tuned for that conversation. And we are now just 20 days away from Christmas, as BC Hydro wants to help you save a few dollars on Christmas Day. I'll be speaking with Susie Reeder from the utility shortly to talk about just how much electricity people tend to use during Christmas Day, and she may be able to also help provide a few tips and tricks to help reduce your consumption. So that'll be coming up in just a few short minutes. But before we get into all of that, as we approach New Year's, people may be starting to think about possible resolutions. It seems fashionable now to try and abstain from social media. So, uh, yeah, is that one of the things that you might be considering as a potential New Year's resolution, reducing the time spent on social media? Well, underlying uh, all of these trends is the assumption that using social media is somehow unhealthy and that if we abstain, we might become happier and more fulfilled people. Is there any truth to that? Well, when it comes to social media, a new paper in Media Psychology suggests no. Researchers found that quitting social media for up to four weeks does nothing to improve our well-being or quality of life. The University of Kansas decided to look at what happens when people actively avoid social media use. The researchers assigned participants to five different groups, one that was told to simply continue using social media as normal, so your control group, and then the others were told to abstain from all four or for, from social media platforms for periods of one week, two week, three week, or four weeks. At the end of each day for the entire four-week period, participants recorded the proportion of time spent doing other things such as eating, working, reading, watching TV, or whatever else they did throughout the day. And they also completed short questionnaires measuring well-being, quality of life, and loneliness. It then had to exclude those people when it was uh, putting together its results. Researchers had to exclude exclude people who use social media during the time that they weren't supposed to because... Clearly, it is just that hard to stay off of, so a number of people had to be excluded from the results, and researchers were then left with 130 participants. They then went about trying to find out, you know, whether there were any differences in the measures of well-being between abstinence and control days, and if so, whether those or whether these effects depended on how long people abstained for. What did they find? Well, they discovered that there were no 
significant effects regardless of how many weeks participants were off social media. They concluded that uh, days when participants were free to use social media and days when they abstained from it were indistinguishable in terms of end-of-day loneliness, effective well-being, and quality of day. So there you go. If you were thinking about spending less time on social media in 2020 in order to help make you a happier person, well, that's not going to be the case. You're not going to be happier if you spend less time on social media. That being said, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. Uh, spending less time on your phone, on your computer, staring at screens is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you know, just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Get off social media so that you can spend time doing other things, whether that be talking to the people that you are in company with, whether that be going to the gym and exercising, whether that be, uh, you know, going to the grocery store and, and planning more time on your meals so you can eat healthier, whatever the case may be. If you're going to be doing something, and in this case, what we're talking about is spending less time on social media, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons, not just so you can spend less time liking people's pictures. Although, that being said, that's probably not a bad idea either. Uh, yeah, dopamine, that's what we get from our screen time. And, and there is a trend now of just trying to abstain from, from dopamine use or dopamine fasting, as some people like to call it. That's a bit of a trend that's ongoing as well. So, uh, yeah, it's not necessarily a bad idea. Just uh, don't think it's going to improve the way you feel at the end of the day because it's not going to make you feel more fulfilled. It's not going to make you feel happier. It's just going to give you more time to spend on other more productive activities. Uh, yeah, so there you go. We are, what, 21 days away? No, 26 days away from New Year's Eve. So if you're planning on putting together a resolution for that day and hopefully picking something that you can actually stick by, because that is the hardest part of all, right? Once you make a resolution, the hardest part is to actually stick with it for more than, uh, we'll, we'll say, a month. People are usually pretty good about it until the end of January, but then after that, uh, things tend to go down the drain a little bit. So uh, there you go. Four weeks spending uh, off of social media won't help you. So if you can make it uh, four weeks till the end of January, from the beginning of January to the end of January, staying off social media, well, you're not going to feel any happier as a result, but hopefully you can feel like you've been more productive with your time. On that happy note, uh, we are, uh, like I said, uh, 26 days away from New Year's, but we're also just 20 days away from Christmas Day. So uh, you might be able to save time by spending less time on social media, but uh, one other thing that you might want to save on is money and the amount of money you spend on electricity. I'm going to be talking about BC Hydro, about just what you can do to help save, save money and also use less electricity. So stick around for that conversation because it's going to be coming up after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, December the 5th. Yes, we are now just 20 days away from the Christmas holiday. And of course, I'm sure a lot of people are, are getting ready for the day, whether that be through uh, getting their food ready to cook on that day or buying presents for those that are going to be joining them in the morning. But one thing, of course, that everyone I'm sure will uh, at least be thinking about at some point between now and then or maybe on the day of is electricity. Yes, of course, when the holidays come around, we use a lot more electricity. And here to talk about uh, sort of how different things look come Christmas Day is Susie Reeser with BC Hydro. Susie, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. 
So let's just talk about Christmas Day itself. I mean, uh, you guys have done some research here looking back to uh, Christmas Day on 2018 and uh, comparing it to a normal a normal day uh, throughout the winter, I guess. So what, what are the differences in the hydro use on Christmas Day? Just how much more power are we as British Columbians using on Christmas Day? Well, last year we saw a 15% increase in the amount of electricity used in homes in B.C. compared to the same day a week prior. And we also saw similar numbers in 2016 and 2017. It ranged from about a 15 to 20% increase overall. So, uh, And that peaks about midday. So by about 1 p.m., uh, British Columbians had used about... 8,000 megawatt hours more electricity than they did on the same day the previous week. So just to put this in perspective, because mm-hmm. <laughs> not everyone knows what a megawatt hour is, uh, that's about the equivalent of cooking 1.5 million turkeys. So so that's a lot. And I guess when you talk about the fact that it kind of starts to spike at around 1 o'clock, uh, you know, I can kind of start uh, connecting the dots, if you will, about sort of what is happening around that time that might start to see that rise in electricity rates. But uh, maybe just for those who uh, who haven't crossed those T's yet, I mean, what are what some of the factors that are leading to that increase in hydro use? Well, it seems the biggest factor is cooking, uh, hosting in general, but mostly cooking. Um, we found 95% of British Columbians that plan to have family and friends over are going to make meals from scratch, and about 60% plan to bake their own holiday treats instead of buying them, and uh, only 13% of people said that they serve their guests takeout. And when you think about the fact that we sort of live in this on-demand world where uh, you can order food via apps, uh, it was it was a little bit surprising, to tell you the truth, um, that only uh, 13% were going to, you know, go to, let's say, a supermarket and pick up a ready-made meal or, or order something uh, from one of these apps. Or um, Yeah, so it just it goes to show that British Columbians are really in sort of a, like, DIY mood for, for the holiday season. And uh, I'm curious to know, because uh, you're looking at 2018 data, so we're talking about uh, Christmas fell on, I believe it was a Tuesday last year. So when you're comparing, I guess, just a, an average Tuesday to a Christmas Tuesday, I mean, that makes sense why there might be a, a bigger discrepancy, I guess. Can you, can you compare it at all to a, maybe a regular Saturday in the winter? Do you have any idea of maybe what the difference might be from that perspective? Yeah, so it's still around the same. It's still about a 15% increase. And um, we did look at 2016 and 2017 as well to make sure that the usage story uh, remained the same. And uh, in, 20, in, in 2017, it was about a 20% uh, uh, increase. And so that was, that was even bigger. And uh, in 2016, it was very similar. And so we do factor in things like weather. And, and uh, even last year, there, there was the storm. So we had to factor that in as well. Um, there was that big windstorm and some outages in 2018, and uh, consumption still still went up as well. So uh, people are just preparing food. They're having guests in their home, and um, they're using more lights and electronics, and and that's uh, that's all adding to to this increase. Do you find this at all, I mean, this is sort of anecdotal, I guess, but just do you find any of this a little bit surprising? Not that people are using more, because that doesn't surprise me at all if you are the host of, of you know, your, your Christmas get-together or whatever holiday you're celebrating and you're having all these people over. Of course, you're going to use a little bit more electricity. That just makes sense. But, um, you know, a lot of those people are coming from, from homes where now maybe they aren't using any electricity because they are uh, paying someone a visit. So, I mean, that doesn't seem to, to even out at all, right? I mean, it seems like 
uh, there is an increase. And, and despite the fact that maybe there are a few more emptier homes on Christmas Day, that doesn't necessarily reduce the amount of electricity they're using. Yeah, it seems to it seems to even out. Can you imagine if absolutely everyone hosted someone? <laughs> no, um, I could it, not. it would be it would be double double the usage probably. One of the things I did really find surprising about the report is uh, how many people who are guests in other others' homes are conscious of their electricity use. Um, so, eighty percent of British Columbians that plan to stay with family and friends over the holidays, so are they going to be house guests? Said that they're going to be taking extra steps to limit their electricity use, such as you know turning off lights and turning down the heat when they're in someone else's home so um people are mindful of uh the electricity bills of others and i thought that was a nice heartwarming christmas (laughs) christmas uh anecdote that that we're so um mindful of that in other people's homes and uh, most people actually said that they're great house guests so uh we asked british columbians how how would you describe yourself as a house guest and almost 60 percent said they're very helpful uh they like to help their host cook and clean and only about three uh, percent of british columbians said they feel that their host should cater to them as a guest and another thing that was surprising is how offline people claim to be when they're visiting family and friends um only four percent said that they are easily distracted and go on their phone um, a lot while visiting. So even though you know we live in this on-demand world where we can order things and we're constantly on our phones and watching TV, it seems when we uh, go to someone's house over the holidays, we're really focused on just being present and having a traditional over um, a technology-driven holiday. Well, that is definitely uh, refreshing to hear that people, uh, you know, are, are are conscious of of the fact that they should be paying more attention when they are around people. And you know, it's a one day a year holiday, so it's uh, not a not every day that you get to spend time with family or friends like you do on Christmas Day. And um, you know, it's good that they are, in fact, actually paying attention to the company that they're with. Although I do think, uh, you know, you did have three percent say they were uh, a little bit more entitled when they are aware uh, or at someone's home. Um, I, I feel like that number is probably higher, and and we just have three percent of people that are very honest here but uh, <laughs> maybe you, know, you never know <laughs> um how, how can people go about i guess uh, saving a little bit more do you have any tips or tricks for people who are uh, you know hosting a, a large group and, and maybe want to save a, a few more dollars is there anything in particular that uh, they can be aware of in order to do that because uh, it's not an easy thing when you do have a, a whole bunch of people running around your house no, absolutely. Uh, so one of the easiest things you can do if you have people over is to lower the temperature. So uh, keep it at about 18 degrees Celsius. Uh, that'll make sure your guests are comfortable, but also keep your heating costs to a minimum because heating can account for up to 50% of your bill in the wintertime. Uh, also, uh, decorating with LEDs. Uh, we had many British Columbians say that when people are coming over, they add to their decorations, so they put up more lights and more decorations, and um, you, they're seven 75% more effective than incandescents, and they last 10 times longer, so you're going to save a lot of money there. Another just little simple things you can do, uh, baking in batches, that saves a lot of energy, so bake as many holiday treats as you can at once. 60% of British Columbians said they're going to do their own baking, so that can really add up in terms of power use. And also, it's, it's tough, but avoid peeking into the oven <laughs> and opening it and letting, uh, letting heat escape because then it'll have to reheat. Um, so just try to use your oven light and look in that way. And also use tightly fitted lids on pots and pans to keep the heat in. So just, just some little tips and tricks. And, um, you know, if you just implement them all, it will add up to some savings for you.
Yeah, definitely some some good advice right there. Not something you necessarily think of. I know I always uh, uh, I try to turn on the light in my oven and look in, and then I find a you know it's not a good enough view, so I end up opening it anyway. So uh, people shouldn't do that. Uh, it, it's cooking in there. We we can assure you that much. All right, need an oven cam. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> go. There's cam. a new invention that we need. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's about all I had for questions for you here, Susie. Anything else that you think people should know when they're getting ready for this holiday season? Yeah, you can track your electricity use and look for places where you can make improvements um, uh, with My Hydro, and you can download the app or you can uh, go online at bchydro.com. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I think it's a good message for those who are uh, maybe handing out some ugly Christmas sweaters for Christmas. They can put those on and turn the heat down so they can stay warm. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much, Susie. Appreciate your time. Okay, no problem. That was Susie Reader with BC Hydro. Yes, we are just 20 days away from Christmas. And looking back at that survey, it actually found that a quarter of British Columbians do plan to have family and friends stay with them over the holiday season. And of those, nearly 20% are concerned that house guests will use too much electricity. So one out of every five people that would be hosting their family or friends for the holiday season is worried about the increase in electricity use. So if you are going to be one of those guests at someone else's house, maybe you can be a little bit uh, a little bit nice and, and try to reduce the amount of electricity that you are using. Reduce your consumption. It's, uh, it's not only good for the environment, but it's also good for the people that you're staying with, and I'm sure they will appreciate it. Yes, of course, like I said, we are just 20 days away from Christmas. Less than three weeks to go, so you don't have a lot of time to get your affairs in order, but you do still have some. So don't procrastinate too much longer, or you may be stuck in the snow trying to make those last-minute arrangements. And trust me, everyone knows when you waited till the last minute to run to the gas station on Christmas Eve to buy them presents. That said, uh, you know, a lot of people could use a gas card, so maybe it isn't necessarily the worst Christmas gift you could buy, but it's definitely, uh, definitely pretty evident that you waited until the last second. And I just want to go back to some of these uh, guests that uh, Susie had mentioned in the survey that they did. 57% of guests uh, say they're rarely distracted while visiting family and friends and enjoy helping their hosts cook and clean. So 57% of you are very good helpers out there. The social butterfly, the guest that's rarely on their phone and instead tries to uh, engage in face-to-face -face conversation with family and friends. So one-third of people out there are very attentive and pay attention to the people that they only get to see maybe one time a year. So that's good for you that you're paying attention. 4% master of distraction, the guest that often uses their phone or watches TV when visiting family and friends. So 4% of people out there, uh, yeah, you don't even really want to be around your family and friends. You just want to watch TV or play on your phone. So maybe spend a little less time doing that. Uh, like I mentioned in the intro, though, if you're going to spend less time on social media, it won't make you happier, but uh, your friends and family might make you a little bit happier about that. And 3% uh, of people out there are the entitled one, the guest that feels host should cater to them and doesn't lift a finger to help cook or clean. Yes, uh, the holidays is a good time to sit back and relax and uh, just let everyone else do all the work for you. I'm a, I'm a big fan of doing that, but at the end of the day, I feel guilty doing that. So I wouldn't put myself in that 3% category, but uh, doesn't mean I don't want to be a part of that. Anyways, coming up, penguins. What can they tell us about how climate change will impact humans? Well, I'll be speaking with a University of Saskatchewan professor about just that after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. 
Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Thursday, December the 5th. We are 16 days away from the official start of winter, so I can't think of a better time to begin thinking about penguins. A University of Saskatchewan professor was part of a team that spent years researching how a warming climate and the reduction of sea ice affects penguin food sources and in turn trying to figure out what that could potentially tell us about how climate change will impact humans. Here to talk about this now is geology professor at the University of Saskatchewan, Professor Bill Patterson. Bill, thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure, you're welcome. So, maybe just start by uh, telling me about this trip to the Antarctic that you guys took. I mean, first of all, how did this trip kind of begin? Like, what was it that inspired you to be a part of this team that went down to the South Pole? Well, it's a bit of a strange story, but there, there are a number of people that have been working in Antarctica, obviously, for uh, over 100 years as scientists. And one of my former grad students was at a meeting, and one of the ornithologists from the Antarctic Survey was talking and about penguin populations, and he said, it's too bad we can't tell what they've been like in the past. And this former student of mine said, well, you know, talk to this guy. He does weird stuff. And um, so I got involved with the, the penguin research probably about 12 13 years ago, and since then we've expanded to cover a number of species, not only the uh, penguin species, but also the dietary uh, items that they, they prefer. Uh, and then subsequently we, we found that there was a, a direct effect, a direct link between whaling and sealing operations off the coast of Antarctica and the health of penguin populations, and it, it's gone from there. So I guess what what uh, what kinds of work were you doing exactly? I mean, you sort of touched on sort of the the things you were studying and and the food source and and uh, the what penguins were eating. I guess was the main point of this research. So I guess you know how did you go about finding just what penguins were eating and how that changed over time? What kind of work were you able to do to to figure that kind of information out? Well, we've all heard the adage "you are what you eat," and that's true with penguins as well. And not only you are what you eat, but if you're a bird laying eggs, the eggs are what they eat. So we were able to collect eggshells going back around 44,000 years in some, some cases, some ancient rookeries. And the isotope, stable isotope values, the chemistry of those eggshells, records the diet at that time. So we can tell what penguins were eating 44,000 years ago just as well as we can tell what they're eating today using those techniques. Man, that's uh, that's a pretty impressive that you can kind of tell the changes over the course of 40,000 plus years. Um, so what, what were you able to find out? Uh, how have the diets of penguins changed over the course of that time? Nothing really happened for 40,000 years. And we got to the modern, and the, the problem was what, nothing happens. And I asked the uh, my my collaborator if there was any modern material we could take a look at. And he said, sure. And I said, well, we should just measure the modern material, and, and we'll have to, you know, tie this off and move on. Measure the modern material completely different from the last 40,000 years. So then the question is why? And the first thing to come to mind was perhaps it's related to uh, the taking of uh, baleen whales and correlating seals, uh, which were driven nearly to extinction. When you drive those species to extinction or near extinction, the krill that they would formerly eat are are free to move about the Southern Ocean. So there was what was uh, estimated to be an excess krill, uh, or surplus krill, of about 150 million tons. So the penguins switch to eating krill. Uh, I've described it as if you're going to the beach and to eat 
and there's a deadly uh, foe waiting for you in the water, do you grab a quick shrimp cocktail and get out of the water, or do you, you know, lounge around in the danger zone uh, looking for for other things to eat? So of course they would they would take the quick way out, and krill are perfectly nutritious to the penguins. So that's that's a no-brainer it seems for the penguins. So they switched to krill when the whales and seals were gone. Now that the whales and seals are coming back, they're eating the krill again, and the penguins. Some species of penguins are suffering as a result of that. Hmm. That's that's interesting. So they're coming back, and I also understand that I guess uh, you know ice coverage has an impact on this as well. Right, sea ice is is declining uh, dramatically. Uh, the temperatures in the winter in Antarctica have gone up by about six degrees in the last uh, eighty to hundred years or so. Um, that's very very uh, that's a exceptional warming, and the sea ice that's produced. This is actually frozen seawater, so it's not icebergs. Uh, the sea ice is kind of like an upside-down farm or an upside-down garden where the plants are growing underneath. And in this case, the plants are diatoms, and the diatoms serve as the main food source for young krill. So by reducing the sea ice, you reduce the food for the krill, and therefore you reduce the krill populations even further. And to pile on even more, the uh, krill fisheries and international krill fisheries are now taking enormous amounts of krill for commercial purposes. So humans are involved in that as well, that aspect. So from all of that data that you collected in terms of, you know, what, what food source is being left available and how it is a, a shrinking, I guess, for the penguin population, is there any risk, I guess, for, the, for penguins moving forward? Is there a potential that, uh, you know, we could uh, be without penguins here in the not-too-distant future? Uh, there's a risk that we could be up without certain species of penguins. Uh, there are three, they're called progacillus, they're brushy-tailed penguins that everyone would recognize from children's cartoons and movies, Madagascar, for instance. And uh, those three species, the chinstrap, Adele, and gentoo, respond differently to the rise and fall of krill. So the Adele and chinstrap are particularly focused on krill feedings. Their populations have both gone down significantly in the last 80 years. So that's not a long time in geologic mm. terms, or even in human terms. Uh, people have been alive through this entire record. And um, the implications are that we could see uh, those species, the chinstraps and the deli, becoming endangered, whereas the gentoo, being more generalist feeders, uh, they're more flexible in their diet. They'll, they'll, they'll eat other things that aren't as desirable to the chinstraps and the deli. So they're actually taking advantage of this situation and expanding in number. 75% to as much as 600% increases in Gen 2 populations as the living space becomes available. So they all like similar uh, rookery uh, situations or environments. Um, therefore, if you remove two of the species that are in competition for that living space, uh, it, it is an advantage to the uh, general species, in this, this case the Gen 2, which quickly takes over the sites formerly occupied by chinstraps and adelis. Wow. Okay, and uh, so that, I think that kind of leads into the next point where I, I saw some, some comments from you where you were kind of extrapolating this data, that you've, these findings that you found. So how, um, you know, the food source of penguins and how that could potentially, you know, be a, a showcase, I guess, for what climate change could do to humans and our food sources. Can you talk about how you were able to kind of make that connection and, and sort of what that connection is? Well, that, that actually wasn't had nothing to do with the paper itself. It was sort of an <laughs> off-the-cuff yeah. remark, an answer, an answer to a question is, uh, is there 
a human story that related this, and the first to come to mind would be one that's well known to a lot of people, the potato famine in Ireland, where people, instead of focusing on krill, uh, the people are focusing on uh, potatoes, and the reason they were growing potatoes is they were poor, and that was the only food source that could tolerate the climate of southwestern and, and western Ireland uh, and produce sufficient uh, nutrition for the people. Uh, so they ended up uh, stuck in this monoculture that was very susceptible. When the blight came over in the 1840s, the blight quickly wiped out the potato crop, and the poor people subsequently were, you know, in a way wiped out as well. The population of Ireland went from about 8.5 million in 1840 to 3.5 million today. So they have not recovered uh, yet uh, from the 1840s to this, this very day. Um, we see examples of that all around the world through human history when uh, one group of people is, is forced into a tighter and tighter uh, what we call an animal world or a niche, uh, you're more and more susceptible to any kind of environmental change. And we saw this dramatically with the, the bushfires in Australia recently and the koala populations being uh, you know, knocked down 80%. Yeah, that's a, it's just an interesting uh, sort of comparison to way the way to, to to look at it that you put forward there to look at uh, you know how this krill uh, shortage, if you will, is going to impact penguins and in turn how uh, you know whatever food source that we rely on here, um, I guess geographically it depends on where you live when and what food source you might be more dependent on. If if uh, climate change were to affect that particular food source, that it could have a potential impact on on the, the mortality rate, I guess, of humans moving forward. Um, so yeah, definitely some interesting. Stuff stuff. Uh, so I guess you, that wasn't part of your research, eh? That was just sort of something that you were able to kind of put two, two and two together when uh, kind of thinking off the cuff. Yeah, Monday afternoon I was asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> so had you thought about it at all before Monday afternoon? Because, I mean, you were able to come up with this answer pretty quick, so uh, just, just out of curiosity. Well, I do teach a climate history course, so uh, in that course we, we focus on the last 500,000 years, uh, essentially of bad things that have happened to people. Uh, related to environmental change. And that could be temperature change, could be droughts, floods um, that result in feasts and famines and rise and fall of uh, uh, empires. Uh, the Roman Empire could be uh, reasonably tied into the weather in the Mediterranean region uh, for the period of time the Roman Empire existed. We saw warming and a drying during the summers. This is great for cereal crops. And as long as the Roman Empire produced enough food to feed their army, they could expand. Once that weather took a downturn around 400 AD or so, we enter what's called the Dark Ages. And this is when the Roman Empire uh, collapses and splits into two. And uh, that's probably very likely related to the, uh, the cooling and the wetting and the reduction in cereal crop availability and the weakening of the empire, allowing you know for the incursion of people from the north, the Germanic tribes, and people from the east uh, out of the uh, what today is the Middle East. Well, Bill, there's some interesting stuff there. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are now more concerned about the penguins than they were 10 minutes ago, and uh, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. And, uh, yeah, that's all thanks to you, and definitely some interesting extrapolation in terms of how this uh, research that you have done could potentially impact uh, humans moving forward in our food sources as the, the climate uh, change continues to, to happen and, uh, yeah, the change in our, our potential, what we eat here moving forward. So thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, thank you. Awesome. That was Bill Patterson, geology professor at the University of Saskatchewan, talking about his research that he has done as it relates to penguins and their food sources, particularly when looking at krill and then, uh, yeah, 
working that back to figure out, uh, you know, potentially Creel could compare to potatoes and the penguins could compare to the people of Ireland and sort of what they had had to go through during that time stretch in the uh, 1840s and I guess uh, still dealing with a, a little bit here today, as Bill had said there. Uh, coming up after the break, a historic church in Merritt burned to the ground at the beginning of this year and efforts have been ongoing to raise funds so that it can rebuild that historic facility. I'll be talking about those fundraising efforts after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. Today is Thursday, December the 5th. We are approaching the one-year anniversary of a fire in Merritt that destroyed the historic Murray Church. The building had been standing in the community since 1867, the oldest building in the Nicola Valley. But on January 11th of this year, the building was burned to the ground. Since that time, members of the community have banded together to try and rebuild. If the church is to rise from the ashes, the Trinity United Church Board is hoping to raise $200,000 and it has since made quite a bit of progress towards that goal. Here now to talk about this effort is Christina Miller, who was with the fundraising committee. Christina, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So maybe talk a little bit about the church itself just before we get into the fundraising efforts. I mean, how has the loss of the Murray Church impacted the community over these past 11 months? Oh, gosh, yeah. It, um, not only the community, um, but, yeah, definitely has left a, like a literal hole in the in the Nicola Valley. Um, you know, lots of fond memories of people growing up and going to that church and being being there for um, certain occasions. And now when you drive by, it's just an empty kind of space that's left on the horizon. So the people uh, of Merritt have been extremely affected, but it's also been far-reaching. Like, over all over Canada, people have sent us letters about the loss and um, even, like, from Europe, people have contacted the church and, and um, expressed their condolences. So, yeah, it has affected the community, but it's also gone far beyond that as well. So, yeah, clearly there's a lot of people out there who have had an emotional attachment to this building and, and uh, you know, have, have, have a connection to it over the course of their lives. And clearly, you know, it's been very far-reaching. Like you said, people from Europe are sending you letters about this. But I guess in terms of what, uh, you know, physical impact to the community itself, I mean, I, I understand it has uh, or it used to be a host of a number of events that would occur throughout the year. Uh, maybe not a ton of things, but even just a small few. And, and it's clearly had a, um, a bit of an impact on just sort of what, I guess, hosting ability of certain things. I know there was like, I believe, a, a blanket sale and things like that that would occur. That Are, are those still going on? Have they moved? Or has that really been uh, something that's been lost as a result of the, 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 the Mary Church not being there? Well, it's definitely been lost. We were, you know, we wanted to have a the antique quilt show, I think is what you're referring to. Yes, um, thank you. Yeah. Um, we wanted to have, we still wanted to go through with that, that, that this year and just have the blankets all hanging on a fence out there, but just the manpower to stay out there in the cold in the fall, uh, you know, without a building to shelter you from the Nicola Valley winds wasn't really practical. And so, yeah, I think people are sensing just, yeah, loss of some of these events. The the uh, Easter service that would have been out there, the Thanksgiving service that would have been out there, the Christmas Eve service coming up, I know is going to affect a lot of people because that was a tradition that they've been doing for a couple of years now. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's just a really sad thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I, more importantly, there's those, those graves that have been there since the 1800s and that church kind of used to watch over, you know, all those, all those grave sites and so it's just yeah it's a physical loss and an emotional loss for sure 
Now, what kind of responses have you been getting, you know, as someone who's been a part of this fundraising committee? Have people been very encouraging of the process and the plan to, to try to raise these funds to rebuild the building? Yeah, for most part. I mean, there's a lot of question around it. I think there are, there are some uh, more neutral opinions about it, but um, for most part, it was the community that actually approached the church to rebuild. It wasn't the church, wasn't Trinity United that that um, <clears throat> kind of spearheaded the the um, the rebuild. It was excuse me. <clears throat> it was the community that kind of came came to us and said, we, we want to see this church rebuilt. Is this something that we can work together to do? So that was, I think that speaks for itself. The community wanted the rebuild. I mean, you're always going to have naysayers and people that, you know, don't, don't support it. But I think for most part, people want to see another building there to fill that space. And that takes us basically into the fundraising effort itself here. So uh, how have things been going on that front? I mean, the goal was to raise $200,000, and it looked like things were somewhat slow moving until recently here. So tell me what's happened here over the last couple of days when, when it comes to these fundraising efforts. Yeah, so, um, you know, we tried to get it out there. I think we we missed the boat with, with the news coverage right after the fire, but the community didn't approach the church with rebuild plans when all the news coverage all over uh, Canada was going on about this the, the fire. So we were a little bit late in getting started with the GoFundMe and everything, but... Um, Money was still coming in. It was just slow. I mean, it was we couldn't outreach quite as far as we wanted to, but um, we, yeah, near the end of the month here, we our committee, our community committee, got together, and just before that, the week right before that, is when we got this fifty thousand dollar anonymous donation, which then, of course, like not only changed the whole tone of our meeting, but it like put a huge amount of spring back into our step to just get things going and to keep going because this is something that is obviously worthwhile to people and since then we've had an outpouring of support fifty thousand dollar anonymous donation that's uh, pretty impressive to uh, to be able to uh, you know uh, collect something like that for for an effort that you're you're putting out there to try to rebuild obviously it's going to take a, a big step towards uh, achieving your goal of that two hundred thousand fifty thousand dollars of course being twenty five percent of that so clearly it's uh, it's a big dent in, in what you guys are trying to raise and it looks like here over the last little while too that you know since that anonymous fifty thousand dollar donation it has sparked a few more people to jump on board it looks like you know you, you've received quite a bit of money here over the last uh, you know, a couple of days since that. So I guess, uh, you know, what can you what can you say about the fact that, you know, obviously $50,000 is great, but it looks like it's having a, a nice spinoff effect here as well. Well, yeah, and I believe, like, you know, when people see big donations like that, they can see that the project is worthwhile. It's not just something that maybe will happen that we're just talking about. I mean, we've had posters up since February trying to raise money, and, I mean, we're, we're a small little community, but we, we can do great things, and I know with the support from... A, um, outside of the community as well, yeah, it's it's amazing. So I think seeing that fifty thousand dollars just kind of put a little bit of jump in in everyone to be like, okay, this is a worthwhile project. This is something we should get involved in. All right, Christina, we're almost out of time here, but I'll give you one chance here to sort of let everyone know if they want to make a donation to this cause. How do they go about doing so? Okay, so there's three ways. So there is through Trinity United itself. You can um, mail a donation to them. There is any CIBC branch will have the Murray Church Project account uh, linked to them, obviously, and you can donate at any CIBC branch. That way you can get a receipt for your donation. Trinity will also mail you a receipt as long as you put your name on the, don the donation and through the GoFundMe page at Historic Murray Church Rebuilds Refurbish Project. 
and that also goes if you want to do the buy a brick campaign that also you can donate through those um, means as well just make sure that you label your donation buy a brick and that's fifty dollars a brick which will go towards building up that chimney again with the original bricks Right on, Christina. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really hope, uh, you know, things uh, progress for you guys and you're able to hit that $200,000 goal. But thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank Uh, you. I appreciate it. Take uh, care. You as well. That was Christina Miller talking about fundraising efforts for the Murray Church in Merritt. And just taking a quick update here on the fundraising effort, it has so far raised $105,329 towards the $200,000 goal. So they're making their way there slowly but surely. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me and a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.